The last seven days of Jesus' life were the most consequential ever lived. These pivotal moments not only reshaped history, but continue to hold profound significance for our lives today. Join us as we explore how Jesus' final week can still change your world in remarkable ways. The scripture reading is Matthew chapter 21, verse 10 to 14. Please turn to Matthew 21 in your Bible, or follow along on the sermon notes handout or on the words on the screen. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, My house will be called a house of prayer but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Good morning. Um, Man, we are so blessed by the ability and the quality of gifts that we have up here and up there that are, yeah, man, it's just so good. Um, in, in six months of really, really great worship packages, that might have been my favorite. Oh, man, so good. Uh, would you pray with me? Father, I ask that there'd be a level of seriousness uh, here this morning. Seriousness about your son about his life, his accomplishments, his love, his passion. Might you be gloried in and hoped in and looked to and faithed on this morning. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you are visiting with us, a welcome, special welcome to you at home. If you've kind of parachuted in, we are week three in a series we're called How to Change the World in Seven Days, looking at these pivotal, action-packed last seven days of Jesus' life. And last week, we saw Jesus' gut-wrenching reaction as he enters Jerusalem, the city that he loves, the city that he's about to die in and die for, a city that's going to reject him and as a result, in time, be destroyed by Rome. When Jesus lays eyes on the city, knowing how close they are to salvation, a salvation that they will refuse to receive, and the devastation that that will reap, he breaks down into gut-wrenching sobs. It's a picture that's kind of akin to a scene I saw of a Ukrainian father standing on top of a pile of rubble of a bombed out apartment building that had buried his family. It's that level of grief. And thinking of Jesus in that manner is unsettling for us. We're not used to picturing Jesus that way. I mean, I've seen all kinds of artwork and paintings of Jesus. I have never once seen one painting of Jesus ugly crying. Like, we just don't think of him that way. 
We're way more at ease with kind of an emotionally two-dimensional Jesus who looks more like Spock than Captain Kirk. But Jesus experiences a wide range of emotions because God knows and feels a great range of emotions as well. God is not free from emotions. God is free from all fallen emotions. He's free from how sin twists and tempers our emotions. Sinful emotions are prone to overreaction and underreaction, but Jesus' emotional response are the appropriate, perfect response to any situation before him. Therefore, what Jesus feels and what triggers those feelings offer a glimpse into the very center of who God is and gives us a glimpse of to what he feels about us and our condition. Now, perhaps we struggle to envision uh, Jesus or a God of intense sorrow or anger because the word that is most often used to describe Jesus' um, emotions in the gospel is the word compassion. Over and over again, this is the word that describes Jesus' feeling as he encounters people and situations. But what I hope you see is that out of his compassion, out of Jesus' compassion, flow very intense secondary emotions. And these secondary emotions are not at odds with his compassion. They are the righteous accompaniment to his compassion. And so the same compassion that compels Jesus to go to the cross will compel him to weep for those who will reject his sacrifice. The same compassion and love moves Jesus to ferocious anger at times. Just as the more a father loves his daughter, the more intense his anger will be at her mistreatment, the same principle is at work in Jesus' heart. Um, Dane Ortland, who is the author of my favorite book to quote, if you could tell, the book Gentle and Lowly, I think I've quoted it like 80% of the weeks I've been up here, so that should be a clue, uh, read that book. Um, Dane Ortland says this, quote, Jesus pronounced searing denunciations on those who caused children to sin, saying it would be a better fate if they were drowned. Matthew 18, 6. Not because he gleefully enjoys torturing the wicked, but most deeply because he loves little children. It is his heart of love, not a gleeful exacting of justice that rises up from his soul to elicit such a fearful pronouncement of woe. Jesus' anger, like his tears, is not at odds with his heart of love. It is a necessary expression of it. Now, if you talk to my family, um, you will learn that there are things that take my anger from zero to 60 in like a blink of an eye. I got these things that just trigger me. Like when my kids are disrespectful to their mom or me, sets me off. Or like when I buy a tub of Haagen-Dazs and I hide it in the freezer and it gets eaten and I don't get a single bite. That just... But when I tell some punk kid 
who wants to date my daughter to drive slow when she's in the car, and instead of him saying, yes, sir, I will, he goes to me. That actually happened. So, any young men out there? Seriously, you want to see happy-go-lucky Sean and not Sugar Ray Sean? Don't do this to me about my daughter, okay? Because I'll get ready to lay down some beats. That's what'll happen. I'm just confessing it to you. Um, similarly, Jesus has some triggers. Now, thankfully, they're different than mine. But there are things that light Jesus' fuse, that make him angry. And this is why Jesus goes all fight club in the temple in our passage this morning. And so I'd like us to take a look at these things that provoke Jesus' anger on that day so we don't provoke his anger in ours. Okay? Might be fun to look at this. No, it probably won't be, but let's look at it anyway. All right, hey, Sean, when did your honeymoon period at Central officially end? Oh, I could tell you exactly when it officially ended, in about six minutes from right now. All right, okay, let's get into it. This brings us to our text here in Matthew chapter 21. Now, I want you to imagine with me, the streets of Jerusalem are bustling. The Passover is quickly approaching, and so the city is thrumming with, wor with worshipers who have made their way, who have made the pilgrimage from all over the Roman Empire to worship the Lord in the temple during the festival. Imagine a Jew from Alexandria. He feels his heart pound as he sees the city of David for the very first time. Right? Jerusalem, Zion, the place of the Lord's delight. He almost has to shield his eyes from the, the brilliance of the white walls of, of Herod's temple that are like gleaming in the sun. He has never seen anything so beautiful and it only fuels his excitement to go there and to worship God. And he tugs on the leash of a goat that he brought with him, a goat that he raised since it was a kid. Now, it was a massive inconvenience, of course, lugging this animal all the way from Egypt, but this man, he fears the Lord, and he knows the Torah said that he is to bring a sacrifice, and so he does. The best of his herd trudges along behind him, and as he descends into the city streets, he's, he's not prepared for the flood of humanity that pack out the city, and so he grips the rope tighter and he squeezes his way through the crowd of the bustling street and he can tell he's getting closer to the temple because the increase of activity and the noise and even though he's never been there he can envision it in his mind it, it's been it's been drawn out in the dirt for him numerous times he knows that there's all these courts in the temple Courts that, that as you get closer to the center to where the temple building is, they get more restrictive. And so the outside court, the biggest court, is called the court of the Gentiles. That's the largest one. That's the public one. Anyone can come here. And then inside that is the court of the Jewish women. And then inside that is a smaller court that only Jewish men can enter to worship. And then inside that is the court of the priests. Now, being a Jew... He could enter the inner courts, but for a Gentile, for a Gentile to go in there, that meant death. 
And so God-fearing Gentiles, they would have to worship a little further back. Now, that wasn't that bad. I mean, they're still invited and welcomed and valued here in this holy place to encounter God. And as our traveler, as he climbs the kind of final steps into the Temple Mount, and he enters the outer courts, the scene before him stops him in his tracks. This beautiful structure that was built so that men and women from every corner of the earth could come and connect with the living God. It looks like a marketplace. Straw and hay litter the polished floor. There are ad hoc stables of sheep and goats and oxen are everywhere and the pungent smell of animals and manure waters his eyes. All around him are animated voices haggling over prices and the voices would get punctuated by laughter as somebody makes a successful sale and pats somebody on the back. Sheep are braying, oxen are snorting, birds are squawking and flapping in their tiny little cages which is already filling the dusty air with down and feathers. Men shout out their inflated prices, doves, I got doves here. 10 times the price that they would, they would get on any other time of the year. And on top of all this chaos, he could hear the metallic clink of coins being tossed onto tables all around him as worshipers line up to exchange their coins for temple money. Now paying the mandatory temple tax with a coin that had Caesar's face on it would be an abomination even greater than the exchange rates they were charging you to get kosher coins. And our shocked traveler from Alexandria, he takes all this in. And then over there, he sees a man. He's clearly a Gentile, you can tell by his clothes. And he's down on his knees in prayer. He's down among the manure and the straw and he watches the man, his eyes are closed and his hands are open and, and, and his mouth is, is moving as he silently, silently recites a, a psalm of praise. And then he watches the man's head slump and his shoulders droop in defeat as clearly all, all of his awe and his hunger to worship God is swallowed up by this marketplace chaos all around him. And then he hears it, a lone voice that rips through the cacophony, enough! Whoops. I hope I didn't break it. We'll always remember the day I did if I did. Enough! And a man heaves over a table, sending coins clinking off the metal floor, and then another, and then another, and voices stop, and heads turn, and everybody's looking over at the sound as the man pulls out a whip, and he starts cracking it in every direction. Now oxen and sheep are starting to panic, and they're starting to try to get away from this guy, and they start running into open spaces, and the astonished merchants are stunned still for a second, and then they realize their merchandise is running off, and so they're chasing after them, trying to get them back and corral, corral them back into place, and pandemonium ensues. 
And people back away from this man and they, they form a, a semicircle around him as he drives out more and more animals and, and people until a kind of stunned silence falls over the onlookers. And the man with the whip, he's, he's breathing hard after this outburst. And he looks over at the money changers who are down on their hands and knees and they're collecting their coins and he looks at the, the religious folks in their fine dressed apparel and he says, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? Is it not written that my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. This line by Jesus always felt more at home in the mouth of William Wallace from Braveheart than Jesus from Nazareth. I have a hard time imagining Jesus with 100 proof anger dripping off his lips. And so the question I want us to ponder is why is Jesus so ticked off? What has lit his fuse? Well, I propose to you that there are three matches that are struck on this day. Three matches in this encounter that are uncomfortably relevant for us today. So let's have a look at them. Match one, what lights Jesus' fuse? A marketplace mindset towards God. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but the temple in Jesus' day had become an enormously profitable enterprise. And there was kind of several streams of revenue that, making up, that made up the main source of the temple's income. The first was a temple tax. It was an annual tax that, that uh, all adult Jewish males had to, be, uh, had to pay. Now, the religious authorities would not allow you to pay your temple tax with Roman coins, so you had to exchange your coins for the approved temple coins, and that exchange rate was exorbitant was massively inflated. And so they had these exchange tables set up in the court of the Gentiles in the outer courts to facilitate that. Second source of revenue was the selling of second-rate animals for the required sacrifices worshipers were required to bring. Now this selling of animals was both a moneymaker for the temple, but also a source of great convenience for the people because you were supposed to bring your sacrifice. An animal you labored over. You know, one that you raised yourself, maybe one that your kids loved. Maybe your family loved this animal. You were supposed to bring your own sacrifice and it was supposed to be a grievous process that engaged your heart because the sacrifice for sin is a grievous thing. So when you lay down an animal that you raised, you should be thinking, why isn't this me? Like if justice needs to get done, why am I not slain? How is it that I'm spared, I walk free by the blood of this innocent creature? 
And so this whole mysterious sacrificial system was meant to humble worshipers, was meant to remind us of the deadly costliness of sin, and meant to engage our heart that somehow God graciously spared them from what their sin deserved, which should produce gratitude and worship of God. But that's not what's happening here. Like that's just flying right over their heads. Because they've structured the temple, they've structured their worship for convenience. You easily show up and you check off your duties. It's a spiritual marketplace. You show up, oh, I need an animal, there's an animal, done. Hand it off to the priest, done. Religious duty for the year, done. Now maybe God can get off my back and I can get back on doing what I need to be doing. It was church by rote. And so the way that they worshiped produced hollowed out, lazy worshipers who just mechanically go through the motions. They jump through the religious routines with unengaged hearts. But friends, Jesus did not die for you to have a dry, unmoved, unengaged heart. He did not die for you to spiritually show up here out of duty with a heart and a mind that's unengaged or unresponsive or on autopilot. You're here during worship surfing your phone instead of singing your praises. Your mind is more on your lunch than it is the Lord. Jesus didn't die so that we would just mechanically go through some motions, showing up at a place week in and week out or once on a rare Sunday when you've got nothing better to do. People with a marketplace mentality, they lean toward a worship that's convenient and is easy, requiring minimum of sacrifice or cost to us. And so the call to come and worship is heeded, well, when there's nothing better to do on Sunday. Or after a while, you feel like, I haven't been there in a while, I feel a bit guilty, I should, check, I should show up this month and check that part off the box, and then I can continue on my way until I feel a little bit guilty and do it all over again. H hear me, if you ghost church for long periods of time, you have a marketplace mentality. And you ghost church because worshiping God just isn't your priority. Like, let's just be honest and name it. And it's not your priority because you've been conditioned into this kind of transactional relationship with God. You think, I said the prayer, I believe in God, I show up now and again, I endure sermons that are, you know, too long by half. Boxes checked, duty done. Now on my way. God, you do your part now. but there's little reverence or awe or hunger or desperation for him. It's dry, unengaged religious duty. And that attitude in his people lights his fuse and it will move his disciplining hand upon you. And here's the great news, is that you can turn from a marketplace mentality 
this morning, you can turn from that heart posture because there is a whole Father's house for you to get lost in. I was like, man, this is like, I'm never going to cry in this sermon because Jesus is so angry. I'm like, I don't have to worry about that. But of course, I get all the clept. Hear me, a marketplace attitude produces unengaged Christians that have got kind of empty hearts and little fruit in their life. And the opposite mindset of that is a father's house attitude. This is where there's a desire in you. It's not a perfect desire. It's an ebb and flow desire. I get that. But there is a desire in you to encounter God. There's a consistent recognition that you have been brought in, that you have been adopted, not because of what you have done, but because of what he has done. Worshippers with a father's house mindset, they remain amazed that we don't need to bring a sacrifice other than a sacrifice of praise because Jesus brought all the sacrifice we need. And that, that, that never escapes us. And so we refuse to treat God like a meddling boss who we need to appease by checking off some religious boxes. Instead, we see him as our loving father who warmly beckons his family to come gather with him. And we do it week after week, not out of duty or habit, but we enter into this rhythm to worship and pray and preach the gospel into the center of our hearts so that we trust him more as father, we know him more as father, we love him more as father. And then we are actually changed by this knowledge of what God has done for us. And so as we celebrate and worship with a father's house mentality, a life of joy and peace starts to spring up in us. And so Jesus' fuse is ignited when a marketplace mentality squanders away our place in the Father's house. That's match one. The other two will go quickly. So don't, look at, don't get stressed out looking at your watch, thinking about your lunch. I'm sorry. Second match that lights Jesus' fuse is when the people of God have no room in their lives or their worship or their priorities for the outsider. All of this buying and selling of animals, all of this money exchange took place in the court of the Gentiles. And so Jews could pass right through it. They could could leave it all behind them and enter into the inner courts where they were unaffected by it. Of course, they would never ever put barnyard you know, animals in their place of worship. They would never do that. But the courts of the Gentiles sound like a good place. Let's put it there. Now, why do they do that? Because clearly the Gentiles are not a priority to them. And in doing so, the people of God are creating barriers and obstacles for the outsider to come and worship. Right? How could a Gentile who has to wade through this mess of animals and manure and straw and noise think that their worship mattered to God? How would they ever come to that conclusion? How would they ever think that they mattered to God's people? They are little more than an afterthought who are being given the dredges of ministry. My house 
will be called a house of prayer for all nations, Jesus says. God's heart is passionate for those who are on the outside spirituality, uh, who are on the outside of spirituality, not just for the Jewish people, not just for his people. And his anger erupts when the selfish religious practices of the people of God serve themselves at the expense of his mission to outsiders. Do you hear me, Central? Can you see Jesus' heart here? When we lose sight of God's passion to bring people who do not know him into the Father's house, then the mission of God no longer directs and motivates us. Instead, what motivates us and what directs us is our own personal consumeristic church preferences. Our comfort and our convenience will drive what we do. And when a church becomes self-serving, that ticks Jesus off. Parents of kids will get up in the youth pastor's face because the new kids showing up have got messy lives and I don't want those kids influencing my kids. Which means you don't want your kids and the gospel influencing those kids either. Central, the mission of Jesus is messy. It means getting up and close and personal with people who live lives very differently than we, than we do. And that's the whole point. But sadly, too many churches major in missing the point. Um, uh, when I was 25, I was a brand new young adult and worship pastor in Regina. And a lady who had been following Jesus more than twice as long as I had been alive. Uh, She phoned me up at home on a Monday morning, which was my day off, and she chewed me out on the phone. She chewed me out because the sudden influx of university students who were coming to our church meant that she couldn't sit in the same section with the same people that she sat in for decades. And she didn't like that. She didn't like the change that was happening. And then she said, and another thing, if we got rid of those drums and we started playing reverent music, then maybe these irreverent 20-somethings with baseball caps and pajama pants wouldn't be in God's house. And I tried to gently explain to her that that I think this is a good thing. I think Jesus smiles big when, when mature Christians make sacrifice and space so that more people can come into the Father's house. I think that reaching the next generation is a major priority. And she said to me, and I am not making this up, she said to me, they don't pay your salary. And we had a church veteran with no heart for mission. A little church vision beyond her own preferences and wants with no care for the next generation, no room for the outsider. And as a young pastor, it made me confused and it made me sad and I think it made Jesus angry. 
Um, I don't know if you notice at the end of the section that Al read that Matthew lets us know that right after Jesus drives out all of these people, these people who are hindering the worship of God, Matthew says this, 21 verse 14, the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Jesus always makes room in the Father's house for those who need him. The last match that ignited Jesus' fuse in this text is the hard-hearted hypocrisy of God's people, particularly the leaders, the ones who should know better. Uh, after Jesus does his house cleaning, he quotes Jeremiah 7, verse 11 to the religious leaders. And he is applying what he is doing. They, they know the text. They know the passage this comes from. And so Jesus is applying the criticism the Lord levels in Jeremiah chapter 7 to these leaders in this situation. And so listen to the full context of Jeremiah's words in chapter 11. Hear the word of the Lord. All you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord. No sloganizing and empty words, please. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and you do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, and commit adultery, and perjury, and burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in my house, the house that bears my name, and say, we're safe. We're safe to do all these detestable things the rest of the week. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Jesus accuses the religious leaders of the same hypocrisy that Jeremiah exposed. Now, let, let me talk to you for a minute about hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is not having sin in your life. That's not hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is living two lives. It's promoting a spiritual propaganda that tries to hide the gap between your outward persona and your inward character. The sin of hypocrisy is, is, is not that we are more messed up than we seem, because all of us are that. We're all more messed up than we seem. Hypocrisy is using the veneer of public righteousness to try to cover and hide the rot of private sin. Kevin DeYoung says it like this, the sin of hypocrisy lies in thinking that who others think you are, because that's the only one you're fooling. 
The sin of hypocrisy lies in thinking that who, who others think you are matters a great deal more than whom God knows you to be. But I am watching, declares the Lord. And it's clear from the gospel that this is what caused the widespread spiritual rot in the religious leaders in Jesus' day. Here's just a sampling of what Jesus says about them. He says everything they do is done for people to see. They love the place of honor at the banquets. They love their titles. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplace. They neglect mercy and justice and faithfulness. They are full of greed and self-indulgence. On the outside, they appear righteous, but on the inside, they are full of wickedness. And Jeremiah calls out these leaders who enter the temple to do their religious duty, duty shouting their spiritual slogan, it's the temple of the Lord for all to hear and think, quote, that we are safe, end quote. They think they're safe because they fool others and maybe even deceive themselves, but the Lord is not fooled. I am watching, declares the Lord. Now, hear me, Central. We are so prone to pretending and faking. We can fall into hypocrisy because truth is, we think that the, the image that we present and project to others that we might fool them into believing is true of us, that's what really matters and not what the Lord actually thinks about us and knows about us. And so what lit, lit Jesus' fuse on this day was their marketplace mentality when it came to worship. Their refusal to uh, make outsiders a priority in their lives. And three, their unconfessed hypocrisy. And so what I ask myself is that if Christ sauntered into central, what would he find? Or maybe more fitting and more make my knees quake is if Christ sauntered into the temple of my heart, what would he find? Worship team, you can come on up. Uh, Solomon said something very interesting in Proverbs 5, verse 14. He wrote, I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. It's possible to be here, to be in this room and say, this is the church of the Lord, this is the church of the Lord, and be at a place of almost ruin spiritually. And that happens when, when our unchallenged hypocrisy or your transactional marketplace mentality towards God or your self-first religious practices evict Jesus' mission from your mind or from the temple of your lives. And when that happens, we lose all sense of majesty toward God. We get desensitized to his greatness and the movement of his kingdom. For our hearts become like this chaotic marketplace where our idols and our priorities actually crowd out real worship and they end up hollowing out our passion and leave us with just empty spiritual slogans and dead religious routines. And that is what passes for Christianity and that is not what the Lord has for you, for me, for us. The Lord loves us too much to leave us there. 
And so his disciplining hand will turn over tables and start driving stuff out to make space for the Holy Spirit to fill the temple of your life again with hope and purpose and praise. And so if you feel any conviction, you've got one of two choices. You do nothing on your conviction and wait till Jesus grabs a whip and he starts disciplining you and he starts moving you into a place where you'll bend your knees in repentance. Or, or you become like another guy in scripture who went to the Lord's temple, fully aware of the disparity between his inner life and the bigness of God. And he said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And the Lord did because that is a request Jesus will answer and honor every time. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, this type of sermon runs so contrary to my personality and it stressed me out all week because I, I, I don't want to unduly afflict people with insecurity in what you have done in your son. I, I don't want people to think somehow that, that, that getting our lives all lined up and our motivations perfect is what brings you pleasure. It's not. You take pleasure in us. You have compassion on us, which is what drives you to tears and drives you to anger and drives you to discipline us because you care. And so, God, might we, might we rest in your care this morning? And if your spirit is, is intersecting our hearts and calling some of our priorities and our, our misguided values into question, might we lift them with open hands before you and your word? And might your spirit lead us into truth so that we can experience the, the joy and the security and the life that happens when we are anchored in our Father's house. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Let's stand and sing together. We want to take a moment to thank you for listening, and we invite you to join us on Sunday mornings in person or online. For more information about who we are and what's happening at the church, visit us online at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast.